This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Last time, we were in a discussion with Captain Jason Rimmer, the Division Director of the LEAD Division at the United States Naval Academy. We continue our discussion. Captain Rimmer, last time you joined us, we were talking about the LEAD Division, the team that touches the midshipmen every year as they develop their leadership ethics character development going forward. Now we're going to talk about humanitarian affairs. But before we do that, if you don't mind telling the audience here how you got here. Oh, I'd be glad to. So I, I grew up in uh, Texas, a little town, Sherman, Texas, about an hour's drive north of Dallas. And um, knew fairly early on that I was interested in, in going to the Navy. I'm third generation Navy. My, my grandfather was a World War II vet and a South Pacific survivor. And my dad served during the Vietnam era. At any rate, I was uh, fortunate to receive a, an appointment to the Naval Academy and uh, went into aviation and, and spent the early part of my career flying the SH-60B Seahawk helicopter off of cruisers and frigates. The aircraft is gone now, but it's been replaced. It's, uh, it was a predecessor to the MH-60R now. Uh, I commanded HSL, now HSM-49 out at NAS North Island in San Diego. And from there, went on to be a navigator on USS Abraham Lincoln, and then served as XO and commanding officer of USS Kearsarge. Following that tour, I went on to a, uh, another uh, command at sea as uh, Commodore of Fibron 8. And that's uh, where I left last fall uh, prior to arriving here at the Naval Academy. And I want to focus on especially those last two jobs, Kearsarge and Fibron. What is a Fibron? So Fibron is how we, we organize the... Uh, the ship elements of an amphibious ready group. So, and I say elements because the amphibious ready group is the marriage of a Marine expeditionary unit and usually about three ships. Typically for the last many years, it's been one LHD, one LPD and one LSD. And with the, when the MU embarks, when it's time for workups and deployment, you have uh, a complete cross section of the entire United States Marine Corps. Every MOS is uh, represented within the MU and that's how they organize. That's their basic organization for, for fighting from the sea. So we, we go out uh, on, on Kearsarge, for instance, on that deployment, we had um, just on the, the flagship alone, we had about 2,500 souls, and that's made up roughly of halves, about 1,100 on the ship's crew and about 1,400 on, uh, on the Mew. From a distance, you know, if you looked at the uh, profile, uh, you might think you're looking at a, a Nimitz-class carrier. We're a little smaller than that, so a Nimitz-class carrier is almost uh, 1,100 foot in length and displaces about 95,000 tons. A... Wasp class LHD is about 840 some odd feet and displacing about uh, 45,000 tons. So it's about the size of a number of our uh, World War II area carriers. So with total deck space and hangar space, we generally will embark about 25 aircraft. Um, 22 of those on my deployment were Marine Corps aircraft, uh, 12 Ospreys, uh, six Harriers, and the, the rest of the mix being the, uh, the 53. And then we, we bring three Navy helicopters out that serve a uh, role for utility, search and rescue, and combat search and rescue. So that's a, it's a, it's boiler plant. It's, it's non-nuclear, and, um, but it definitely, you know, on a profile to the, the, to the uh, uninitiated, uh, would look like an aircraft carrier. It's a, essentially an amphibious assault carrier. What makes us uh, the, the most different from any other uh, type of conventional carrier is that we have a well deck, meaning on the stern or the back end of the ship, we have what amounts to be a giant tailgate, we will call it a stern gate, that folds down into the water 
And then we, using ballast tanks, we intentionally start sinking the ship uh, to a point where we can we can get up to about uh, eight feet deep of water in that well deck. And you can imagine a big hollow uh, space going into the back of the ship. Within that, there's about uh, three different types of craft we can put in there, uh, landing craft units, and then also the LCACs, that's the air, air cushion. And those are what we would call shore connectors, how we can get heavy equipment and lots of folks from ship to shore and shore to ship. If you looked at a modern LCU that we we would embark, it looks a lot like a World War II era uh, landing craft, except that it's a, a lot bigger. It's big enough to have a cabin below decks and and can uh, you know withstand and sustain uh, overnight operations. But that's the uh, that's the big difference maker. So then instead of only operating from the flight deck, we can simultaneously operate from the flight deck, pushing forces ashore, and also using our, our shore connectors uh, from from the well deck. You know, you're taking me back a little bit here, Jason. Um, Two things I remember from uh, three things. I'll tell you the third thing in a second. Two things I remember from my time on ships like this is number one, it's loud, especially the flight deck and the well deck when the uh, when the air cushion stuff starts happening. Uh, and number two, it's just the coordination. I mean, it's really, really cool to see that Navy Marine Corps team working together. It's probably one of the best places I've ever seen to see this this teamwork because you got to work as a team. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's so many places in the Navy where you'll see that teamwork that just makes your head spin, you know, flight operations from the flight deck of a Nemitz class carrier are very much like that. This one has two, these two other elements. One that I mentioned is that, uh, you know, we could, we could be simultaneously using the well deck and we do frequently, uh, do simultaneous operations because we need to be able to keep that skill set up. Um, in fact, one of our final exercises before deployment is an all-out assault on, on the coast on uh, coast of North Carolina. Uh, the second one is that you're bringing together. It's not joint. Navy and Marine Corps is not considered joint, but it kind of feels joint because we're we're operating with with another service, and it gets to the the roots, uh, particularly of the, of the Marine Corps. Uh, I, I, I guess a core function would be operating from the sea, and that's what makes that team different. Is that we can uh, identify areas where we can insert Marines. And so even when the maybe the coastline uh, wouldn't allow for it, that ability to operate from the air, but ideally having some uh, beachhead or, or uh, even a, a developed port where we can push Marines ashore by air and by sea, that, like I said, gets to the core function of what an ARC can, can offer a fleet commander. You know, and that's great. I, the, that third thing is, as you know, I was, I was a backseat of an OV-10, which is a plane that's been long since retired, we did not have the ability to launch off a deck with a catapult. So we would step at the back of the boat, if you don't mind me calling it a boat. Everyone's, you know, my pilot and I are stepping on the brakes, revving the engines up, and then we shoot off the deck just like they did in World War II. Actually a little scary, to be honest with you. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> so so the Kearsage was, you know, was there for amphibious assault uh, advanced force operations, but they also have a very significant role in what I'll call non-combatant evacuation and humanitarian issues. Can you break down those missions for us a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, there's there's a real utility knife or Swiss Army knife uh, kind of uh, function of, of an ARG uh, in that just as easily as we can carry uh, combat arms, we can also carry uh, things to, to help relieve, relieve suffering after disaster. And so, you know, we've used a few terms of art uh, during the course of my career, and I think we've landed on the last several years, uh, defense support of civil authorities, 
and then foreign humanitarian assistance. They used to have the DR tagged on to that humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. But uh, they, they, at the tactical level, they look very much the same. The kinds of things we're doing are the same. And I'll break it down a little further. So for defense support of civil authorities, that is um, federal military forces supporting um, civil authorities. Uh, that's the C and the A and DISCA. And so you can read that as, um, you know, D is defense, but you can also think, uh, you kind of keep in your mind, D is also domestic. So that is that is us helping in any number of things. And you can, you can rattle some of them off, but uh, after a hurricane, uh, flooding. But we do that at the invitation of, of the governor, right? So there's, you know, we, we will come in with our expertise and offer an, an array of capabilities, but it's up to the governor of that state and there's, you know, there's Title 10 and Posse Comitatus kind of separations there, or, which are very important because if you live in a, if you live in a country where your military is also the police, you might not be living in a great country. Um, so we keep those distinctly different. And so we will subordinate ourselves to those civil authorities. In foreign humanitarian assistance, we would offer the same types of assistance. But again, we're, we're not in charge. We're going to work with the host nation offer them the services uh, and, and integrate with other international organizations and non-governmental organizations, NGOs, uh, private, and maybe other nations that are assisting private sector, et cetera. So both of them have uh, this feature of the military and usually your deployed forces are extremely tactically focused with, with uh, impact at the operational strategic levels. But this tactical focus coming underneath a, um, uh, this assistance role that uh, has civilians at its head. You know, we had Administrator Criswell of FEMA on this channel uh, a, a while ago, and and of course her podcast is still up there. She talked about DISCA and how DISCA works with the naval services and all all of the armed forces. You were in zone with Irma and Maria, although from what I understand, you guys didn't load out initially to head, you know, to head to the Caribbean and and do stuff. Yeah, that's right. Tell 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 me that story. Oh, absolutely. It was. Um... I think a lot of your listeners probably recall uh, 2017 was an extremely active storm season. You know, you've got this uh, storm generation that happens, uh, you know, in the eastern Atlantic, you know, west of Africa. And uh, it was it was like a pitching machine in 17. You know, they kept pushing out uh, a number of storms and a number of high powered storms. And so we had been out underway, uh, some type of a, a local workup in the uh, in the Vay Capes off the coast of Norfolk in the last the latter part of August of 2017. And um, if you remember Harvey, uh, Hurricane Harvey was the hurricane that uh, came in and went right into the Gulf of Mexico. I believe it was, uh, I believe it was Category Four, and then really turned into a, just a, an unbelievably, uh, uh, just a tremendous destructive rainmaker in that in the kind of centered in the Houston uh, part of the uh, part of the Gulf and dropped millions of gallons of water and caused a lot of flooding. At any rate, we we were tasked. Um, as, as Harvey had gone and made landfall, uh, we were tasked on August 30th to return to port and, and load, uh, I believe it was the 24th MU. And I, the reason I can't recall is we ended up embarking at different times, the 24th and the 26th MU, and I forgot who was first. But we were ordered on the 30th to embark the, uh, on the 29th to embark, to go back and embark the MU and supplies and, and go and offer assistance, uh, which would become a disc mission uh, somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. So we, we headed into port. We were in port for about 31 hours and, and loaded an entire mew and a tremendous amount of supplies uh, for, for sustainment. 
And uh, I only know this because I was XO at the time, but we were exactly almost to the minute, 31 hours from pier side to underway again. And uh, then you can imagine the amount of movement um, and just sheer, you know, work it took to get uh, shore connectors, shore connectors embarked, additional aircraft, uh, you know, about 1400 Marines and a staff to come on and embark us and direct those operations. So we left on August th uh, 31st and proceeded southbound. As we got down to the, uh, uh, somewhere near the, the tip of Florida, Hurricane Irma was uh, rumbling around out in the Eastern Atlantic and had a track that made it appear it was gonna go into the Gulf of Mexico. Well, if you look at that map, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is nothing more than a, um, a cul-de-sac and a ship in a cul-de-sac with a hurricane bearing down is a terrible idea. So we proceeded through the Florida Strait. That's the uh, body of water, you know, the piece of water that separates Florida from Cuba. And I went around to the southern side of the island chain. And essentially, um, uh, using the island chain is almost like a highway divider. We went down, uh, we went on a southeasterly course as Irma proceeded on a uh, north, our west by northwesterly course on the other side of the islands. We ended up uh, being a beam, that storm. Uh, I think we were separated by the Dominican Republic. And along the way, we, we ended up um, uh, evacuating some folks prior to landfall. And kind of the timeline's not uh, perfect here, but if you'll bear with me, we, we, one of the missions we got into was um, needing to evacuate a number of Army and Air Force medical personnel that were in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. And I say a number, was, I think the number is near, near 400. So we, we did not have a ship's bill or an instruction on, on how to do that the best, but what we did have is a non-combatant evacuation operation bill. And if you look at that, you know, the, the cause of the of a NEO it was not terribly important. The conduct of that evacuation is exactly the same. You know, what are the resources used to get human beings and, their, and as many of their belongings as appropriate to a ship and out of a dangerous situation? So we actually executed a NEO, although it wasn't truly a NEO, it was just a, an evacuation, and then replaced them back in the Virgin Islands once the storm had passed. Um, at that point, uh, the, the, real, the real haymaker was coming. I mean... Uh, Irma was a five, but the, the landfall and the kind of the glancing blow was not nearly the same as what Maria would pose to Puerto Rico and, and other islands. I think by about 16 September, at this point, we've been underway for two and a half weeks. 16 September, you know, she was a tropical storm and, and changing into a hurricane. As the track uh, appeared that Maria would head towards uh, Puerto Rico, we headed south towards the coast of uh, Venezuela, uh, probably got more than halfway between uh, Puerto Rico and Venezuela. And then we timed our return to Puerto Rico so that um, we had Ospreys over the beach in Puerto Rico the morning after landfall. Landfall is on 20 September. And so we had sorties launching in the dark on the 21st and, and uh, over, uh, over Puerto Rico for observation and kind of initial damage reports on the, uh, on the 21st. So with the Ospreys overhead, we were able to get uh, some of the very first uh, hand reports of exactly what the damage looked like. And we were able to pair that with uh, news on the ground and reports from Puerto Rico. Because as you recall, they had a tremendous uh, loss of electrical power for a long time. I mean, months after we even departed the area, uh, there were there were dark dark areas of the island. You could see it at night. You could see what areas had, had lights on and who didn't. Well, the... Um, we had we had already completed this this neo this non-combatant evacuation operation for our our own uh, fellow uh, airmen and, and soldiers and replaced them in Puerto Rico. You know because of the vast population that was affected, this kind of evacuation was not 
not part of our mission. There's simply not room on, on any one of the, uh, I think they ended up with about three ships in the area initially um, to do that. So we shifted into how do we get uh, supplies and, 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 uh, and expertise? And I'll get to the expertise in a minute. That's a neat story. But we started pushing the things that you, you would think, you'd imagine. It, it starts with you know, fresh water, uh, canned food, you know, non-perishables. We had taken so many things, you know, the blue tarps, which became uh, ubiquitous on the island just to try to give folks the ability to, to repel water and, and, and wind out of their homes until permanent repairs could be made. So we started pushing those uh, ashore. But what happens, what is common to any uh, humanitarian assistance or a DISCO is that initially, uh, I'll use kind of a, I don't mean to be funny, but we kind of refer to like, particularly in aviation, it's a little bit like kids soccer. Uh, you know, in kids soccer, every, every kid groups around the ball. Well, when you have a number of assets show up, you know, it's up to us at the, at the beginning to, to deconflict aviation operations by altitude and routes, because in this case, uh, you know, there was not an operating tower. There hadn't been some, uh, any opportunity to operate around Puerto Rico initially. So we are making this up as we go based on geography, based on where the ship is and based on what, what the missions require. And so if you look big picture, if you kind of elevate to maybe 20,000 feet, what generally happens, and, and this is a classic one in that it's an island, the initial phases are usually, hey, let's get emergency supplies in and we'll do that via aviation and we'll do it by the shore connectors that I, that I mentioned. And these shore connectors, to give you a feel how, how much an LCU can carry, an LCU can carry an M1A1 Abrams tank. And you, I, I don't know what they weigh, but they weigh a lot. And so when you replace that tank and instead put boxes and boxes and drywalls of supplies, we can move um, quite a bit. And you're talking you know, about the ship being in a position, uh, depending on depth, maybe, maybe five to 10 miles from the shore. So pushing them back and forth. The next phase uh, of this kind of unorganized uh, aviation and you know, trying to deconflict within just our unit, the next phase starts to be uh, as the as the recovery starts to the early stages of beginning is maybe there's assets on the island that we're now going to deconflict with, and then kind of a third phase. And by the way, you'll find none of this in, in any kind of joint publications. It's my own my own speculation or my own description. When you start seeing the the big gray airplanes show up, and by that I mean you know, when the air force is now able to come in to prepared run, runways or at least you know enough of a runway to get their large aircraft in, you'll start to see the tent cities growing, and that's where. Army and Air Force, well, joint forces are going to set up. You're probably going to have, you're going to have a joint force uh, commander that's going to be the direct liaison from the DOD to, the, in this case, the governor of Puerto Rico. And he is the single push button for all of the, uh, the DOD capability. And he's going to be working jointly with um, uh, other, uh, other U.S. federal officials. And, but really, the, uh, the sovereignty of Puerto Rico, in this case, was extremely important because this is their island. And we're there to help, not, not to take over. And that's, uh, that, would be, that would be the phases that, uh, that I can recall that we, uh, that we went through. I mean, that's taking you through a whole bunch of the expertise that uh, you know, the team developed you know, as, as naval officers in the Navy Marine Corps team. That really is all about innovation, right? It is a lot about innovation. And, you know, we, we do everything we do. Uh, to support that using a number of procedures. We're still going to launch aircraft from our flight deck the right way. We're going to conduct well deck operations. And then all the things it takes to run a, a floating city, you know, we're still serving meals and processing administrative stuff. So where, where the innovation comes in is at the uh, departmental LCPO level and, and at the uh, wardroom level and up, you've got uh, to really draw on your experts to, to tease out, hey, Based on what we're getting back, feedback from folks in the island, what else can we do from them? And I would say our, our most innovative and kind of cool story, if you will, was as we started to learn about the sheer number of 
uh, pieces of equipment that were, were down because of flooding, um, a lot a lot of those tended to be diesel generators. There were a lot of down diesel generators. So, you know, you start thinking about hospitals, nursing homes, and, and the kinds of areas that need to, have, to sustain electrical power because they weren't getting it from the grid. And then their own generators were having issues. And if, if they hadn't been destroyed by flooding, and maybe these generators hadn't been run for a long time, and now they're being run nonstop. So we actually uh, came up with a plan that uh, it was at the time it was uh, Rear Admiral Hughes, now uh, Vice Admiral Hughes. He was embarked with us, and we we offered him, "Hey, sir, what if we took Spanish speakers? Um, you know, we kind of had you know, roughly have an inventory, but we went out to the ship's crew and said, hey, we need to know who who is fluent Spanish, and we paired them up with these little three man teams. It was a Spanish speaker." A, um, a dieselman and then an electrician, and we would send them out. And and really, the plan didn't go much further than, hey, stay together. And when you get to when you get to the island, we're going to take you to kind of an HQ that had been set up, and we're going to send you out and and trucks, and you're just going to go uh, kind of find work. Uh, it started out with, hey, there's definitely, hey, go up to this hospital. This is the route. But then when the work was complete, it was up to them to go find, you know, something else to do. And so we had a number of successful stories. Of, of getting generators up and running. And you can imagine showing up with a bag of tools uh, and working on a generator, you, you know, you've never worked on that brand or that model, um, but just out of uh, innovation um, and a desire to help uh, fellow Americans to go out and, and do that. Another um, another effort that we uh, did was, there was a, a period of time where it's very difficult to get um, a feel for the differences of the levels of destruction within Puerto Rico. It's just, it's just hard, you know, in terms of uh, even getting around roads due to road clearing. The Marines are assisting with a lot of road clearing uh, because they've got the equipment to do it with with the other force, other naval forces we embarked. They had bulldozers and large trucks, and then we used Marines to, to do that. But but this, we, we uh, when we had de- determined, hey, who are our fluent Spanish speakers? And even more importantly, hey, who's from Puerto Rico? And on a ship where you've got uh, 2,500 folks, there there's always a number of folks who have family in Puerto Rico. So we sent them ashore, um, to go and link up with their families and essentially just get on the ground and get the get the real deal, if you will. What is going on? Who has power? Who doesn't have power? Where, are there spikes in crime that we can we can uh, notify the governor about? We can we can help be the eyes and ears. And that was another successful, innovative effort. So we're going to see a lot of this stuff, and the stuff I'm talking about is Mother Nature striking back uh, at, uh, at at the world in a sense. Uh, but you know the the, the neo operations, the non combatant evacuation operations, are going to continue. How do we prepare ourselves? How does your team prepare the midshipmen, and how should the midshipmen prepare themselves for seeing this stuff going forward? Yeah, absolutely. You know the 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 word we've been kind of centered on here, this uh, innovative. It's it starts with a it starts with a good education, and and as you come into your warfare, whether it be surface warfare or aviation or what have you, in, in this case. You know, this is one of these are the types of missions where, uh, with with no offense meant to my submarine brethren or my TAC Air brothers and sisters, nobody's looking for hornets or submarines when uh, when a hurricane hits. Um, but those communities would would also, I think, agree with me that you know a sound and and thorough understanding of your tactical mission, um, the ability to operate, uh, for lack of a better word, heavy machinery. You know, as a JO, you're probably going to be assigned to, to some kind of heavy machinery, and by that I mean you know, ships, submarines, um, aircraft, et cetera. Once you, you know, you've got to be a master of that. Um, those, those JO years and department years are when you, be, you move from apprentice to master. And 
underneath that, once you have the comfort with all the capabilities that you bring to this, to a mission, there's a, the ability to innovate and to think innovatively. And I, I think an education here uh, at the Naval Academy certainly uh, assists with that. You know, there's, you know, you can joke around that, uh, well, I never did calculus in the cockpit or I, I never did a, you know, I never did a, a balanced chemistry equation while, while on the bridge of a ship. That's true, but you did uh, achieve a level of uh, critical thinking, uh, analytical thinking, and through projects and labs, you know, some level of, of innovation, and you bring those those skills and those synapses that can that can fire and again. But that's assuming or requiring that that you've already become a um, at least a journeyman in, in your in your main trade and your in your main warfare. You know, we'll leave it at that. I like the way you describe the fact that uh, all of our graduates will be heavy machine operators. Captain Jason Rimmer, thank you very much for joining us talking about humanitarian affairs in your experience and what young midshipmen will see as they get out. Thanks for joining us on Radio Stockdale. Oh, it was a pleasure, Michael. I uh, look forward to uh, linking up with you again. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts. 